going to come up and lead us in that and, and then in the sermon. Good evening, brothers and sisters. Let's turn to Psalm 32. This will be our sermon text tonight. Just taking a very brief break from Genesis in light of the Lord's Supper tonight. Um, wanted to consider Psalm 32 together. So, Psalm 32. This is the word of the Lord, so let's give it all our heart's attention now. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Our New Testament reading is Romans 4, 1 through 12. As the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, picks up on Psalm 32, connects it with Genesis 15, and teaches us about the doctrine of justification, forgiveness of our sins. Romans 4, 1 through 12. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all those who believe, 
though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that the words of my sinful lips and the meditation of all our hearts would be, in fact, pleasing in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a song that was popular when I was in high school. I don't recommend the song. Don't go look it up after the service. Um, But it was called Good Life. Uh, It was popular. It was all over the radio. I think it came out in 2009. I had to look it up. But anyway, uh, it's about getting famous. It's about making it big. It's about uh, touring the world and getting praise and adulation. And it's all about the good life. And the chorus goes, this has got to be the good life. This has got to be the good life. This really could be a good life. A good life. Um, not exactly Shakespeare, but gets the point across. With music, it's a little catchier. Um, it, it's a vision of the good life. And our culture has all these things, right? Um, pop culture is full of it. Um, all, all these things that, that say, here is the kind of life that really makes you happy. Here, here's the good life that... Um, that you should pursue. Here's the kind of life that uh, you see someone living that life and, oh, I wish I had that life. Um, there's a deeper and better vision, though, of the good life in another song, and that's Psalm 32. This is the good life. This is the vision of the, the life that, oh, you wish you had that life, that God holds out to us. And says, here's the good life. Here, here's the happy, the, the, here, here's the life that has the smile of God on it. Um, Psalm 32 starts off talking about blessing. Now, there's two words in, in Hebrew that are often translated in our Bibles as, as blessing or, or blessed. Um, one of those words is barach. Um, and uh, it's used of God's covenant kindness to his people. It's used in places like Genesis 12, where God blesses Abraham, where he sets his sovereign grace on him, calls him to himself, pours out, pours out goodness on him. That's one word, barach. The, the other word, often translated as, as blessing, is ashrei. Um, and, and that word means something more like, like happy or, or almost lucky. Here's, here's the person who's, who's got the happy life, the, the good life in a sense. Um, this is the word, this is the Hebrew word, ashrei, that's used, for example, in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the uh, way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. That's, Psalm 1 says, that's the good life. That's the life that God is smiling on. Um, and here it is, also in Psalm 32. Vision of, vision of the good life according to God's word. Uh, something that's far better and richer than anything our culture offers us. Here, loved ones, God tells us that the good life, indeed the best life, is the life that is under his gospel. That, that the good life is the forgiven life. That, that, that the happiest life you can live is the life of having your sins forgiven, washed away 
living under the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Psalm 32 is. It's a celebration of, of that life, of the forgiveness that we have. Um, and that, loved ones, that's, that's a reminder that we, that we need. We need to remind, be reminded that, that the, the good life is the forgiven life. Um, uh, because, because often we don't live in that, that joy. We might be living under the weight of guilt, under, under a great crushing burden of, of guilt. Um, growing up, we had this illustrated edition of Pilgrim's Progress called Dangerous Journey. I don't know if you've seen it. It's got big pictures in it, um, really vivid illustrations, and they stick in my mind so clearly. But uh, the illustration of, of Christian and his burden is this huge, it's just absurdly large burden on Christian's back, dark and menacing. It just weighs him down. And that is so often um, can be our experience under the guilt of sin. And to you, Psalm 32 says, come taste forgiveness. The relief and the happiness and the joy and the freedom of guilt lifted and sins covered. On the other hand, maybe you need to hear Psalm 32 and its message about forgiveness because forgiveness is kind of like last year's news to you. Heard it. The old, old story is starting to sound, you know, we've, we've heard it. Um, uh, Psalm 32, brothers and sisters, reminds us that we need to feel the weight of our sin and then feel the joy of forgiveness as well. It calls us to, to hunger and thirst after that, to, to know the sinfulness of our sin and also the glorious grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and to, and to remember again, not just know, but, but, but to, to deeply know to, to really know and experience the joy of sins forgiven, that the forgiven life really is the blessed and happy life. That's Psalm 32. It, it unpacks it for us in six stanzas, um, and we'll just walk through these together. So number one, first stanza is verses one through two, and the point here is that the good life is the forgiven life. Um, the psalm opens like this. It says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. First notice there, brothers and sisters, the use of the words for sin. You pick up on that in those first two verses there? Um, it uses four words to refer to, to sin of some kind. It talks about sin itself. Um, and then transgression, excuse me, starts with transgression, then sin, then iniquity, and then finally deceit. Uh, th- those first three, transgression and sin and iniquity, are the three main categories for understanding sin in the Old Testament. Um, uh, transgression, that, that's a key one. Transgression means crossing a boundary, that there's, there's a boundary line that God draws, and you rebel against it, and you say, I don't care what the boundary line is, I'm crossing it, going against it, directly against it. God says, shall not commit adultery. I'm going to do it anyway. God says, honor your father and mother. No, I'm going to dishonor my father and mother. That's, that's transgression. Deliberately, willfully, stubbornly saying, I see the boundary line. I'm going past it. Um, then also, uh, then the next thing the psalm mentions is, is sin. Sin itself. Um, which, which means a, a falling short, a missing the mark. You can think of Paul's famous words about falling short of the glory of God. Sin is where you know, you know what you were supposed to aim for, but you didn't hit the target. Um, you, you failed, and you're still guilty for that failure. 
God says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you don't even get halfway there. And then there's iniquity. Iniquity is something that is broken or, or twisted. You can think of a, a bone that is broken. Um, that's, that's where you, uh, God, God, says, um, God, God says in his law uh, to love your neighbor as yourself. But instead of loving your neighbor as yourself, you twist it. And you show kindness outwardly to your neighbor to manipulate him or exploit him or get something from him. It's where your, 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 your desires are twisted. They're wrong. There's something fundamentally off and broken and perverted uh, in your desires and in your heart. Uh, and, and so David, uh, we see this so often in, in the Old Testament, he brings together, God brings together, all three aspects of sin. Transgression, sin, iniquity, all, all these things. And then on the fourth, he adds also to this here in, in Psalm 32, he adds deceit, a fourth one. Um, hypocrisy. Having an outward obedience, but an inward disobedience. And, and David is, is pulling all these things together to give us a picture of the totality of our sin and the depth of our sin, how dug in it is, how entrenched it is in our hearts, and how multifaceted our, our sin is. Our sin is not two-dimensional, but it, it's, it's, uh, it, uh, it, it's, uh, the, the depravity run, runs deep, and there's many aspects to it. You can hear this same language of David's echoing in Psalm 51, where he's saying, Have mercy on me, O God. Blot up my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. This is the Old Testament's way of talking about total depravity. It's telling us that we're sinners in what we choose, sinners in what we think, sinners in what we feel, and that every time we sin, it's got these various facets to it and aspects to it. Uh, it's what the children's catechism is getting at when it says, how sinful are you by nature? The answer, I am corrupt in every part of my being. And so the psalm opens... This, giving us this, this picture of sin, multifaceted thing. But then, over against it, it also opens with a fourfold word of the gospel. With each of these descriptors of our sin, David is also giving us uh, something that the gospel does to that sin. So, verse 1, transgression, crossing the boundary line, willful disobedience. Transgression is forgiven. We're told. Um, the word forgiven means lifted, carried by somebody else. Um, it means that your guilt for your transgression is no longer yours to carry, that the burden of condemnation is, is taken off of your back. Um, it's wonderful imagery here. We, we see show up in other places in Scripture. Uh, this is probably on David's mind uh, as, as he wrote this by the Spirit. Leviticus 10, 17 tells us that the priest's job was to lift and carry the sins of the people. To, to lift off that burden. Um, the scapegoat in Leviticus 16 was to lift and, and carry on his own shoulders the weight of transgression outside the camp. Take the guilt away. Um, it's the same imagery that shows up in Isaiah 53. Wonderful prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the suffering servant, we're told, will bear the sin of many. He'll lift it off your back. And he'll carry it on his back. And he'll pay the price for it. 
So to be forgiven, as, as we're told in verse 1 here, to have our transgression forgiven is to have someone carrying that guilt for you, no longer carrying it for yourself. That's the, that's the wonderful blessing that, that verse 1 introduces us to. That someone else is bearing the guilt of our transgressions. But it's not enough just to say that. Um, David goes on in the next verse. He says that our sin is covered. That our falling short is covered. Here the word covered, verse 1b, means, means hidden. God, God doesn't see it anymore. God, God has covered it up. God has hidden it. And, and he's not going to go looking for it again. It's not that he's swept it under the rug and someday he'll bring it back out. That um, he's got this case of, uh, you know, a filing cabinet full of cold cases. And he's going to pull out your file again sometime and say, I'm going to re-prosecute you for this. Uh, no, it's hidden. It's gone. It's deleted. It's, it's no longer there. Your sin is, is gone and hidden. And then third, iniquity, we're told in verse 2a. Iniquity is not imputed. It's not reckoned. It's not counted against you anymore. Um, this, this is a, a judicial word. We saw this as we read earlier in Romans chapter 4. Um, here, uh, we're, we're told that the, the, the verdict is no longer that we are guilty, but the verdict from God is that we are innocent. And the background here is Genesis 15, verse 6, where God counts Abraham righteous by faith alone. Paul is picking up on this thread. Right, We saw this in Romans 4. He picks up on that thread from Genesis. He connects it here to Psalm 32 um, as he says this, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Paul's saying that... Paul's reading Psalm 32 and he's saying, David saw it too, that, that, that God does not justify us based on our works. But when we look to him by faith, the iniquity of our sin is taken away. It's atoned for. God does not count it to us anymore. Instead, he counts righteousness to us. And then fourth thing here in the opening section, opening stanza, Paul tells us, excuse me, David tells us, deceit is no more. Deceit here, I think, means insincerity. It means that you're living a life that's outwardly okay. Good performance meets the religious requirements outwardly, but inside the heart is, is far from the Lord. Uh, this, is, this is, brothers and sisters, uh, I'm sure you know this from your own experience. This, this is when outwardly your life looks all right, but, but inwardly you, you've got the shame of that sin, that one that you're carrying, uh, that, that guilt. And, and you've got this thin veneer of... Um, of righteousness that might fool some other people, uh, but but inwardly the heart, your heart, bearing that shame and that guilt because you know you're living deceitfully before the Lord. Um, and, and, but but now, the verse two tells us um, the blessing is there's no deceit anymore in your spirit when you've been forgiven. The shame's been taken away, and so you can stand before the Lord clothed in His righteousness, not your own. Brothers and sisters, as the psalm opens with these two verses, this first stanza, it's telling us that in all these ways, right, that we saw the multifaceted sin uh, and the multifaceted forgiveness. And, and David is saying, God is saying to us that this is truly the joyful life. 
to, to have your sin in all its multifaceted ugliness wiped away, carried by someone else, lifted off your back. You're forgiven and you're free and you no longer are living in deceit, but wholehearted gratitude before God. That is, that is the good life, the forgiven life. And the next stanza of the psalm comes. And it shows us quite a different picture. So we, we move from that, that sweet vision of, of the good life being the forgiven life now to the guilty life in the next two verses, verses 3 and 4. The guilty life is, is the miserable life. That's what we see next year. Um, we, uh, we, we look at a very unhappy life, or at least a very unhappy time in someone's life in verses 3 and 4. Um, David here is speaking from immensely uh, personal experience. He, he has sinned against God. The text doesn't tell us, doesn't suggest to us what the sin was. Um, but, but he sinned against God, and he is fully aware that he sinned against God. But for a long time, he's been bottling it up and, and didn't want to confess it. Um, perhaps, I would, I, would, I would guess that's an experience that as Christians, many of us have had, or if we haven't yet, we will. Um, there are various reasons we might not want to confess. Um, we might not want to confess because we don't actually want to give up on the sin yet. We kind of like it. But as soon as you confess it, it starts to put pressure on you to really repent and, and start to change. Um, it can have a hole in your heart and, and thus you don't want to confess it. Perhaps, perhaps David didn't want to confess or we don't want to confess sometimes because we feel the need to clean ourselves up before we go to God in confession. Think of Martin Luther. Right, this is, this is the, the crushing burden he was under. He felt the weight of his sin. He was tormented by his guilt before God, but he was not going to God in, in genuine confession and looking to Him to provide forgiveness and righteousness, but he was, he was doing everything he could, bending over backwards to suffer uh, and atone for his own sins and, and, and do good works to make up for all that he had done. But good works cannot remove an ounce of guilt. But this can keep us from confessing our sin. Another reason perhaps David was reluctant to confess, and, and we often are reluctant to confess, is because we don't want to own up to actually how sinful we are. Once you actually try to um, have to say to the Lord, Lord, here is what I've done, and here is why it is so terrible. It humbles you. We don't like to admit it. Our, our, our impulse, our deep, deep impulse is to be self-justifying and to think we are better than we are. And so, David, he's been hesitating, he's been holding back and not confessing his sin. Um, what, what's the result of that? He tells us, verse 3, our bones get old, he says. The ESV has it as, my bones wasted away. Another translation has it as, my bones became brittle. Guilt becomes like bone cancer. It gets in and it starts to, 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 to eat away at the very inside of you. It becomes this acute pain. David tells us in verse 3 that, that the pain of this indwelling guilt made him groan. You could also translate the word as a roar. And he, 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 is, he is in excruciating pain of, of the guilt of, of what he's done. Um, few things, I would, maybe nothing, is as, is as excruciating as being under the weight of crushing guilt, of uh, knowing you've sinned and, and knowing you can't change it, knowing you can't back, turn back the clock and fix it, knowing you can't escape the consequences of it. 
There's a powerful moment in the play Macbeth where Macbeth has just murdered his Uncle Duncan. And he's come back to his wife who really encouraged him to do it in the first place. And he comes back with blood in his hands. And he says to her, Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand, or rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, means to make red. He's saying, if I try to wash this blood off in the ocean, it'll just will turn the whole ocean red. My, my guilt will just become all the more apparent. What, what's he saying? He's saying uh, he cannot remove the guilt himself. That it, there, there's no way to hide from it, no way to cleanse it. And every time he tried, it would just make it worse and worse. David tells us the reason for this. Verse 4. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, he says. It doesn't always strike everyone that way. Sin doesn't weigh heavily on everyone, but for those whom the Lord is going after, for those whom the Lord has called to himself, if you're one of God's elect, you'll, you'll know something, brothers and sisters, of what I'm saying about feeling the weight of guilt, that it's God himself pushing that weight on you, pushing you to feel the pain of it, pushing you. He's a, he's a, God afflicts his own to make them feel the, 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 the weight of their sin, the sinfulness of their sin. God does this when he's bringing his elect to saving faith often. He also does it with mature saints, brothers and sisters. That's not just something that happens as we're leading up to conversion, but also later on in the Christian life. I mean, David wrote this psalm. King David, the man after God's own heart, felt, he went through a season where he felt crushed by guilt for his sin. But it's the mercy of God to do this. Um, you can think of it like a rototiller going through the garden. God, God plows us up with affliction. Softens the soil of our hardened hearts so that he can plant his grace there again. Um, it's what Jesus says in the Beatitudes, isn't it? Blessed, happy, ashray, lucky, good life. Those who mourn. Mourn for their sin. For they'll be comforted. We should pray for this. Pray for a sense of our sin, the sinfulness of our sin, so that we would know the sweetness of the grace of God in Christ and run to Him and know Him and rejoice in Him. And we should pray for it, brothers and sisters, um, and, and we should expect to, 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 to know that experience somewhat in our own lives as we mature in the faith. John Calvin himself, no babe in the faith. John Calvin wrote this. He said, The more anyone excels in holiness the farther he feels himself from perfect righteousness. And the more clearly he perceives that he can trust in nothing but the mercy of God alone. The more you excel in holiness, the farther you feel from perfect righteousness. And you come to see that you can't trust in yourself for anything, but only trust in the mercy of God. Let's look at the third stanza of the psalm. Verse 5. Here we move from the bitterness of guilt to the sweetness, the honey sweetness of grace. Um, 
Verse 5, David here tells us that he confessed his sin. So God afflicted him, pressed him, and brought him by his sovereign grace to the point of confessing his, his sin to him. He confesses, notice again, the threefold uh, uh, anatomy of sin that he uses here. Uh, he confesses his sin, falling short of the mark. He confesses his iniquity, twisting uh, the, the, the perversion of what is right into something wrong. And then he also confesses his transgression, his rebellion against the boundaries God God has said he, he confesses all of those aspects. And he doesn't just simply list them out. It's very interesting, the, the structure here. Um, there's, there's a kind of a chiasm, which is sort of a, a mirroring structure where, where David uh, works through this just to show how thoroughly and deeply he confessed to the Lord. First, he says, I acknowledge my sin. Then he says, I did not hide my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions. And then he reverses it out from transgressions to iniquity iniquity to sin. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. This isn't just a quick confession that he made. Lord, forgive my sins. Move on. But this is a real acknowledgement of the multifaceted nature of his sin, bringing it all before the Lord, and, and he's rejoicing that, that God, has, uh, God has forgiven all of it. Every single aspect of it. Um, and, and then he gives us this profound truth. Uh, the end of verse 5. God forgave him. He confessed. God forgave him. God did not hold it over him. God did not wait to forgive him. God did not make him earn that forgiveness. David confessed, and God forgave. Um, God, God, same word there earlier. We said the word means lifted off. God, David confessed, and God, God lifted the burden off of his back, placed it on the back of our Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. As, as soon as David brought the burden of his guilt to God in honest confession, God lifted it and never put it back on him. Um, this, uh, this text, brothers and sisters, has this precious promise for us that confessed sin is forgiven sin. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9 this is just the Old Testament version of the same truth, isn't it? Confess sin is forgiven sin. That deep stain that nothing else will take out, that burden of guilt nothing else will lift off your back, the shame in your heart that you can't shake off, the only way to get rid of it is confession to God. And He will take it all. One look, brothers and sisters, just one cry of mercy to our Lord Jesus Christ, and the guilt is gone forever. And the shame is nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. Might go on sometimes struggling with the sense of guilt for it, but the verdict is final and God has taken it. And we should rest in that. Therefore, moving on to the psalm, the next stanza, the fourth stanza, verses 6 through 7. Therefore, David now calls us to confess our sin. So he said, this is the good life. It's the life that is forgiven. This is where I was in this season of suffering and, 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 and guilt and, and bearing that shame myself. Then I forgave, then I confessed, and then God forgave. And now he turns to us and he says, now you confess your sin. Join with me in confessing your sin. Um, he, uh, he, he calls us to, uh, to cry out to the Lord for forgiveness and seek the Lord's salvation while he may be found. He's saying, don't wait to confess your sin. There will be a time when, 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 when you won't be able to confess anymore. 
when, when you'll try, but God won't hear you anymore. Um, the imagery in verse 6 is of a flood. And I think, um, I think Noah's flood is, is in mind. And, and the idea here, as one writer says, is this. Up until the moment of judgment, Yahweh can be sought. Prayer can be made. Sin can be confessed. Forgiveness can be experienced. But once the door of the ark is closed, no more opportunity remains. So pour out your heart to him. Seek him while he may be found. Don't wait to do it, because when the flood waters of God's wrath come, um, it'll be too late then. But if you've confessed, David says, the waters won't reach you. They won't touch you, because God is your refuge, and he, he is your Savior, and will give you joy. So David calls us to confess our sin in verses 6 through 7. Then verses 8 through 9, he tells us not to be mules. Don't be a mule. Um, This is actually the Lord himself speaking to us, telling us this. Verse 8, he promises that he's going to watch over us, that his eye is on us, and and he gives us this wonderful promise, doesn't he? That he's forgiven us for what's past, and now he's going to lead us in tomorrow. Um, We've been forgiven for yesterday's sins. What about tomorrow's temptations? The Lord's saying, I'm watching you. I'll teach you. I'll instruct you. I'll lead you. I'll guide you. I'll be there with my spirit to help you. I'll surround you with my steadfast love. John Stott, writing on this text, says, He is concerned not only to forgive the past, but also to direct the future. And then the Lord, having said that, says to us, Don't be, don't be stubborn and unteachable. I'm here to teach you. Don't, 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 be a, don't be a horse or a mule that needs to be driven with, 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 with reins, with bit, with bridle. Uh, but rather, humble yourself and bring your heart to be taught by God. We, we might say, don't be like the dog who needs the collar and the invisible fence and keeps running and making the same mistake. Don't do that. Be teachable. Be humble under the word of God and walk by his word and by his instructions. Brothers and sisters, God has given us all we need for life and godliness. His word is rich with wisdom. And we should seek that out and, and know that, um, that that is the way to live and the way to walk before him. He, he has told us all we need to know in the scriptures for how to live a life of faithful obedience to him. So we need to go and learn from him how we are to walk and how we are to live. So you see here, repentance doesn't end with simply rejoicing that you've been forgiven, but then it moves on into new obedience. That's what this is calling us to. That's what God is calling us to. But then it ends with worship. The psalm ends, verses 10 through 11, the final stanza, call us to rejoice in the Lord. Gives us a contrast once again. Gives us a picture of the bad life and a picture of the good life. Uh, gives us that contrast in verse 10. It says, one way to live is the the way of the wicked, the way of the sinner. And that road is a sad road. The end of that road is many sorrows. Um, Verse uh, verse 10 says, Psalm 16, verse 4, puts it similarly. It says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Um, One old writer said, God has many ways to curb and chastise the unruly. You may... By pursuing uh, sin, you may enjoy some fleeting pleasures, but you will end under the wrath of God, and uh, any, uh, any joy will be gone forever. But the psalm holds out to us another way. 
confession, forgiveness, repentance, obedience, and worship. And rejoicing in God. And so the psalm ends. Threefold command. To rejoice. To worship. Be glad in the Lord, it says. Rejoice and shout for joy. The joy of forgiveness. Joy of knowing your sins are lifted. Your guilt is gone. Uh, That is the good life. That God himself blesses for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, these thoughts from God's word. Let's pray together. Our Lord, thank you for the riches of the gospel. Thank you that you have forgiven us. We pray that we would uh, see the sinfulness of our sin and taste the sweetness of your mercy and hear your call to new obedience and worship you with, with abundant joy for all that you've done for our souls. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.